Hey everyone, this is Tom Salome of Device Talks. I apologize if I maxed out the memory on your phone. I know this podcast is huge. It's kind of like a, a white paper for your ears, but we have lots of great insights on pulse field ablation. We'll speak with Steve Michelson, the founder of Farapulse, and now the chief translational science officer at Acutus. We'll talk about how he came to develop this technology. Really cool story. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. Then I'll connect with Ken Stein. Ken is the senior vice president at Boston Scientific. He's also CMO for Cardiac Rhythm Management. He'll talk about where Farapulse is headed. He also offers some insights on how he views the role of CMO. Very cool comments about cynicism and about how he views his his role in the healthcare experience. And finally, we'll have a very short excerpt right in between those two big interviews uh, with Rebecca Seidel. She's president of Cardiac Ablation Solutions at Medtronic. We'll hear about their pulse field ablation program and uh, also hear from uh, Dr. Robert Cowell. He's a CMO at Medtronic's CR business. So uh, lots of great stuff. This is sort of a model of where we're headed. We're going to try to focus on single subjects which with each podcast episode and bring you uh, many, many different perspectives. So uh, let's go. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker is uh, unavailable for this week's podcast. He's back from vacation, but uh, he's got some childcare demands that are keeping him busy. Much more important than uh, than talking about metal devices. But I'm thrilled to have with us uh, two members of our most excellent team: Daniel Kirsch, senior editor of Life Sciences, and Sean Hooley, associate editor of Life Sciences. Danielle and Sean, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Same, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> it's good to it's good to have you. Couldn't your think of something more creative to come up with there. You know that was excellent, Sean. That's all you got to say. But uh, so you you guys really uh, sort of put together the uh, or at least wrote the articles for this week's New Markers Newsmaker. So we'll run them down and and uh, and sort of have you lead the conversation for each of them. But uh, I know before we get into into the news of the week, people are really going to want to understand, Danielle, uh, what is the status of uh, local medtech cult hero, Barry the Groundhog? Uh, well, I haven't really had any Barry sightings or Petunia, his child. That's right. But... I forgot. Barry, <laughs> Barry had a, a adopted and or acquired an offspring from someplace. Yes. Yeah. I actually told somebody else about how Barry showed me uh, his child and they said, did he come out and hold the child up like Lion King? (laughs) No, (laughs) but yeah, I haven't really seen Barry lately. Um, I've been telling people don't look up the lifespan of a groundhog. You you don't want to know. You don't want to know. So so no, no idea if if Barry ran into Carl the Coyote or uh, Ricky the Range Rover or anything like that. (laughs) Um, I, I don't think so. I just think I've been out in the yard a little too much and maybe upset his routine, but, um, the pears on my pear tree are starting to fall to the ground. So maybe he'll sniff them out and come fatten up before he goes to sleep (laughs) for the winter. Barry, Barry does like those pears, if I recall. Yes. All right. Well, the moment you see Barry, please, we'll have you back in the podcast and, and put everyone's <laughs> mind at ease. <laughs> of course. So let's uh, roll into uh, this week's New Markers, Newsmakers. Sean Hooley, you are author of number five. Uh, bring it home, man. 
Ultra Human raises $17.5 million in a Series B financing for its wearable glucose monitoring tech. Uh, from what I understand, Ultra Human is a platform for sort of fitness tracking, but they've made a foray into uh, metabolic uh, tracking now, and they're helping people with diabetes track blood glucose in real time uh, in an effort to optimize diet and exercise. And uh, evidently, it's a very popular platform because it was really uh, a lot of people were interested in this story. All right. Well, great news uh, in the uh, in the glucose and diabetes space. We'll roll on to number four. I actually wrote this one up. We don't have any metrics as to how popular it was, but it certainly is big news. Uh, J&J announced that Alex Gorski will hand over the CEO role to a Duato. He is currently the company's vice chair of uh, the executive committee, and uh, he'll take over as CEO in the new year. Uh, the release cites family health reasons for uh, Alex Gorski's stepping down as CEO. He will uh, be named executive chairman, and uh, from the tone of the release, it's expected he'll still be involved with uh, with management, but, uh, but also J&J is pretty emphatically stating that... Uh, that Joaquin Duato will be you know, will be CEO and sort of is is next in line. This isn't just sort of a, a shifting of titles. It uh, sounds as if he'll be uh, certainly taking over. So not a lot of. I don't know if you guys have any insights in this. I've read a few analyst reports uh, on this, and uh, people seem to uh, accept it as as a, a, a positive move. Um, and and uh, one that doesn't look as if it's going to really uh, change things very much. It seems like uh, Joaquin Duato was seen as a as a possible successor. So not a lot of surprise coming from uh, Wall Street analysts. Uh, it it definitely is out of the blue. I mean, I not that I'm necessarily tuned in to mm-hmm. Johnson Johnson's personnel situation, but you know sometimes you hear kind of rumblings or you, you know that's a planned you know transition or something but uh yeah it seems like the reaction to this is pretty tame so no absolutely and and, and they cited health reasons twice in in the release so uh play uh whatever the situation is it, it works out for the best dr stephen michelson welcome to the podcast oh hi how you doing Doing, doing great. Great to have you on uh, on the podcast. I understand this is your, your first one, and I promise it'll be a great time. So, uh, And you got a great story to tell, so it's going to be super duper easy. Uh, I want to talk about your work at Acutus a little later on, uh, but uh, I always open up these interviews trying to understand sort of people's origin stories. Let's get a little bit into your, your, your background. How did you decide to... Uh, to move into medicine, I understand from our just initial conversation when we started that that uh, you didn't go directly to to medical school uh, after high school or college. Yeah, no, uh, actually, I'm a high school dropout um, ah. uh, and decided to pursue a, a music career. Um, somehow, got a day job in a hospital, uh, and so for a period <laughs> of my early, you know, from late teens to early twenties. I spent, um, you know, a long time, uh, you know, working in the hospital and then taking months uh, off to tour and, you know, record albums. And um, I had two old bands. At some point, I just started loving my day job more. I I kind of got promoted into working in the cath lab, all kind of on the job training. This is stuff you cannot do anymore. But um, I ended up uh, working with a guy named Fred Kuzumoto. Uh, who is my mentor. He taught me everything I know about EP and we started publishing papers. I, I got excited. Um, I, I, w- I was looking at this 
you know, this evolving area of medicine and everything about it was mysterious and exciting. And it was, it was moving so fast and of great interest. So I decided at the age of 29 to start college undergrad and <laughs> That's outstanding. So you were you were publishing papers and such when you were, or at least had your names on papers, and you hadn't even yeah. had the, the high school or college diploma at that point. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Uh, so, and then I uh, went to undergraduate uh, college, and I uh, quit my job as a as a musician. <laughs> <laughs> focused that's outstanding. on trying to get good enough grades so I could get into medical school. How do you at, at 29 uh, sort of decide, okay, I'm completely uh, getting off this track and getting onto that one? Was that was it a difficult sort of commitment to make or, or did it seem it super was. simple? Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, uh, you know, being a musician is very hard. It's, it's full-time work. Uh, I was, you know, we, uh, we, we did get signed. We had some music charted on the college rock charts and, you know, we, you know, we got to tour a little bit, but, uh, and I was at a great kind of juncture in the career where I could have kind of pursued it or, but I just absolutely fell in love with the technology and, and the mystery of arrhythmias. Um, and it had a lot to do with, um, being, you know, working with a guy like Fred Kuzumoto, who, you know, respects everyone around him and um, really tries to raise people up. And yeah, I just happened to be there and he, he taught me everything. So, uh, but you can't practice no matter how much you learn, you're just not allowed to practice unless you go to school. Sure. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I want to get into the medical career in a bit, in a minute, but I'm sure people are wondering what was the name of your band and what was your, uh, what was your instrument? Uh, I had two bands. Well, the first, the one that got signed was called the belly acres. It's a little bit hard to find because in the early nineties, um, you know, everything was still like cassette tapes and discs, um, you know, CDs were kind of new even. I remember. And there's a current band called the belly acres. You can find them easy at Austin, Texas, great band. But, uh, but that was the name of the band. Uh, we were part of core records and then, uh, and that was part of paramount pictures. And then the other band was called Venus Diablo. Uh, and again, there's a modern band that's kind of like a death rock band, but ours was more like beatnik, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> alt rock <laughs> with a saxophone player, a lot of, uh, velvet, uh, and we all had to wear ties. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I'm sure I would have enjoyed it. And what was your instrument? What'd you play? I sang and, uh, and, and play guitar. Okay. I was going to say you had a, you have a, a great voice for podcasts. So, uh, uh, I was hoping you were at least had a microphone access to a microphone. Are you still playing a band in a band at all? Uh, very rarely play my instruments. Um, I do for my daughters, uh, and occasionally for my wife, but, uh, <laughs> good, good use of the skills. So, well, let's fast forward then. So you, you went to college and went to medical school, uh, were you intent upon the, the whole time going into electrophysiology or, or, yep. Yep. So uh, that's, uh, I had one goal. The only mm-hmm. one reason I was there was to go to electrophysiology. I explored a few other things, I, I, but, uh, but uh, I continued to be quite involved and focused on, uh, on being an electrophysiologist. Fascinating. And, and let's fast forward a little, little more where you were practicing and somewhere along the line, you, you came up or helped to develop the idea for that became Farapulse. Ultimately, I'm always intrigued by a physician who, uh, sees a need and, 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 and has the aptitude to sort of build a better mousetrap because you're, you didn't have a biomedical background. You're not an engineer. Uh, talk us, what's, what, give us the, the story about that. How did that all come together? Well, um, kind of growing up, like I did, my dad had a lot, uh, a shop and so we could build anything that we wanted growing up, you know, he had tools and we would uh, steal them and he'd encourage us to be creative. 
But uh, when I uh, got to college, I was so focused on electrophysiology, I ended up going to the NIH for a year, doing some innovative, you know, inventing some things and trying to uh, develop new procedures. I'd been a member of what is the Heart Rhythm Society, NASPY, uh, mm-hmm. since 1994, I think. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, and so I got to see the evolution of, of, of the technologies and I was really I was fascinated with that, like that, that interface between, you know, developing new things, new procedures, new technologies. That's really what drove me into electrophysiology. Fascinating area, great mentor, very motivated. Plus this exciting opportunity for the nexus between, uh, you know, you know uh, man-made objects and man uh, and, and human problems. And uh, so when I got to medical school, you know, I, uh, I, I had, uh, you know, they, the, you know, I went to uh, the University of New Mexico, went to Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville for my internal medicine. But when I applied for cardiology, finally, after many, a decade, right, of this, after my decision, uh, I got picked up. At, I went to the University of Iowa where, you know, in the interview, they, they offered me a spot outside the match, um, which, you know, I don't know, most people won't even understand how doctors get from point A to point B, but mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the, the deal was I, I get to have a little bit of dedicated time to do research. So, uh, and for me, research is play. Like I want to play, mm. I want to play with, with, uh, devices and, and technology and procedures and try to make it better. And so, um, uh, when I got there, they gave me some dedicated time. I, uh, sent a whole bunch of invention, uh, disclosures and, uh, and, and applications for internal grants. And I, I ended up getting one. Um, and it was for the technology, uh, that, uh, ended up being Ferropulse. What happened in my mind is atrial fibrillation, uh, in 1993, you know, we didn't think we were ever going to really, uh, ablate it. It was a chaotic rhythm. Couldn't map it very well. Mm-hmm. And the idea of ablating it was a little bit foreign. We knew that it was possible to do surgeries uh, to address it. And some people started looking at ways of doing it. That's Pierre uh, and uh, Hasegger. They, uh, they looked at drivers, things that start the AFib. And when they published that data, you know, I was actually at the NASPY meeting and I was, I was really impressed with it. Over the course of my training, like going to undergrad and all that stuff, I'm watching the story unfold pulmonary vein isolation becomes the preeminent approach with radio frequency ablation, but it comes at a cost. There's a lot of safety issues and AFib isn't basically a nuisance problem for most people who have it. It doesn't Mm -hmm. tend to shorten your life unless you have other problems with it. So this idea of, well, you know, the risk to benefit ratio for AFib ablation is, you know, you know, yeah, it's, it's not very wide, (laughs) you know? And so uh, anything we can do to increase safety. So I, I looked at the problem and I, I created a chart. I said, you know, where are our big, where are the big limitations? If we could go back knowing that it's possible to ablate AFib and we could start over, would we develop an RF catheter and go around the, the pulmonary veins or would we do something different? Mm-hmm. Would we use RF? Would we use cryo? Would we use x-rays? Would we use diphtheria toxin? I don't know. And so I, I created a big chart, uh, sort of knocking off all the things that are good and bad and how to address them and came up with a procedure, uh, filed the patent and electroporation just rose to the top as being the absolute best energy f- uh, source. Yeah. Talk to me about the difference between the standard and, and what you developed with Firepulse. 
the inspiration came from a safety uh, uh, move. So radio frequency ablation, which is the standard of care, uh, is very uh, flexible platform. Uh, and but electroporation uh, works incredibly fast. It's it's uh, minimal heat. I did not invent electroporation. In fact, electroporation, as far as I can tell, started in eighteen. 67. Wow. Uh, so in this kind of late Victorian era uh, where people were exploring electricity, people started exploring a thing called fulguration and fulguration is high voltage sparking and it create, uh, they would use it for surface lesions. And so I, I, I looked as, at all that data, electroporation, the term was coined in the, you know, uh, as a, a laboratory uh, uh, technique for fusing cells and for doing gene therapy and other uh, technologies. Um, and it was relatively developed, but as a therapeutic or as a ablation technology, electroporation was first applied really either as this technology fulguration or um, uh, in the heart and catheter ablation. The very first human catheter ablation was done with electroporation, DC ablation, hmm. 1980, Mel Scheinman, uh, and then a number of other people kind of quickly followed and transformed electrophysiology from being a primarily diagnostic specialty into being a, um, an interventional specialty. But electroporation had problems, uh, mostly that you had to keep your patients under general anesthesia. And there are a number of other things. Some great engineers had already solved most of these problems by the mid-90s. This guy, uh, uh, Boyd and uh, Cunningham out of, out of London, they actually created the first uh, microsecond pulse generator. Uh, so they called it low-energy DC ablation. <laughs> But uh, it was uh, 1985 or 86, it became uh, commercially available. So uh, you could do what is basically modern uh, pulse field ablation back in the late 80s. But the first RF ablation was in 1986, and every hospital already had an RF generator. So when people realized they could just use RF, boom, it really became the preeminent way because you could do it in an awake patient. And it's a little hard to do kind of traditional PFA in an awake patient. Fast forward, all the advantages of PFA um, were very clear to me and tissue healing and all that stuff. So I, I pursued that with the Iowa approach. And so I started the company because uh, the after filing a patent, the university asked me to, to start a company and then license it back. Hmm. And I thought it was reasonable to do. So I started the company and, uh, and uh, wrote some grants to the government, never got them, SBIR grants. They were scored well, but didn't get make funding. Uh, mm. But was um, but I was able to raise uh, with the help of uh, John Slump and a number of other people, able to raise uh, money to drive uh, uh, the early uh, business. Uh, we we uh, we got the interest of Boston Scientific um, pretty early on. How did you do that? How did you bring them in? Well, you know, I was at a heart rhythm meeting, and I was um, I was doing elevator pitches <laughs> you gotta do. elevator pitch competitions in fact <laughs> iowa approach um was uh was uh got some awards at the rice business school competition okay <laughs> but um yeah so yeah you know I'm, I'm an ep doctor so um uh they they would sit me down and uh listen to me i was actually a fellow in training at the time actually but um but uh the uh so I sat down and uh, showed it to Medtronic, showed it to Biosense Webster, showed it to Boston Scientific, showed it to Atricure, showed it to everyone. 
um, and see if they were interested in it. And um, what I had the first time I showed it off was really preliminary, acute um, you know, animal studies showing the tissue. I tried to explain the history, explain the rationale, and it was an epicardial approach because I wanted to stay out of the left atrium altogether. Although, you know, I had developed endocardial catheters as well, but the primary approach was uh, one that was going to be epicardial so that you didn't have to heparinize your patient. Okay. Um, you know, uh, and that was, uh, uh, and that was the early development first animal study that I ever, so I built my own pulse generator, um, and I soldered together a multiplexer, 30 channel multiplexer designed a catheter and built that catheter, built all the rigs for it, all this stuff for like 40 grand. And, um, uh, and then raise some money, do a chronic animal study because one of the, one of the D one of the, the uh, the guys I talked to at one of the big companies said, Hey, you know, um, this is great, but I don't believe anything unless you do a chronic animal study. So race, we raised a little bit more money and got that. That was actually supported by the state of Iowa. Uh, okay. the, the, uh, uh, so they, they, they gave us a, a loan to do this work. And, uh, at that time, I had met a number of people. I formed a formal board, turned it into a C corp, and uh, and I knew that I had to bring on real professionals. Uh, so I brought on um, you know uh, some professional engineering talent and hired a real CEO, and that's Alan Zingler. He's the head of the the company. Alan wasn't even the CEO of the company. He was just kind of yeah. I invited him to see the first time I ever fired it off incomplete, the whole system working as a unit, and um, and I invited Boston Scientific. So uh, I had fired it off in pieces and done other things, but this was my first foray into medical device engineering, and um, I I fired off the sequence and it worked, and uh, it was quite exciting for me. Um, uh, and uh, and then the chronic animal studies looked incredibly good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that drove investment. How confident were you during all of this that you were doing things correctly and that things were were working out? Well, you know, I had a small team, so <laughs> 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 um, you know, I blew up a lot of stuff building it. Uh, it it's incredibly <laughs> dangerous. Now that I actually know a lot more about what I was doing, um, I realize how incredible it could have been a deadly. Uh, uh, it could have been. I was working alone in a dark room with a capacitor bank that had eight thousand joules in it. You know, I was like, oh my god. Yeah, so I was I was ignorant enough uh, not to know that I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, is probably probably the reality. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to an engineer um, who had worked on a, a, a competitive company's project. And he said that, you know, um, you know, the, there's no way to do what I did because, you know, if you go to the specs on, on, on just wires, you know, to do, you know, a hundred amp wire, the specs on that, you know, you need at least a 14 gauge wire with a huge insulator and all that. I didn't bother to do it that way. I just built the catheter and then I decided the peak voltage will be whatever it could handle. Mm -hmm. And then I empirically tested it and found, you know, if you have microsecond pulses, they, they hold up a lot better than you would think. And so I kind of figured out a 38 gauge wire was fine. So, Amazing. So accidental. Boston Scientific uh, came on as an investor. They 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 uh, obtained a right to acquire the company, which they did recently. We're going to talk to, to Ken Stein later in the podcast about sort of where we go from here. What was uh, did how how long did you remain with the company? 
after that? And did it sort of become something beyond, obviously it became something beyond a project. Uh, was it some, how long did you work there and when did it sort of become, when did you move away from that and move on to your, your next thing, or at least not so, having a thing for a while, perhaps? Yeah. So after I hired, hired uh, Alan Zingler to, to take my position as the CEO, because, <laughs> <laughs> You know, prior to hiring him, I was just, I wasn't just the CEO. I was also the head janitor in a, you know, and <laughs> we had hired, we really only had like uh, um, one real full-time employee at this point. And we had a lot of consultants. Um, uh, at, I think uh, Alan Zingler was, you know, in full-time employee number two, even uh, wow. I was in full-time employee number three. So after two years of work, um, we transformed the company quite a bit. And with, with the interest and in investment, we we're able to raise, you know, a lot more money um, uh, from angel investors. And I stayed on officially for probably another 18 months after that. Um, uh, Cause you know, after 18 years of training, I was just about to start my academic career. And, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't, I, I mean, I couldn't not take care of patients. Um, and, and this company required a real CEO to, to drive confidence uh, so that uh, we could drive legitimate investment. So this was all over four years. You started January, 2012, uh, left February, 2016. Yeah, something like that. Um, it actually started in 2011, okay. um, but uh, the uh, but uh, the uh, it wasn't a C corp until 2012. You're well, you're still practicing medicine, but did, have you gone on to to start other companies? I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. I see Needle Eye Needle Eye Medical. Yeah. I see Cardionomic, where you're a technical consultant. Uh, it sounds like you've got the the sort of uh, entrepreneur bug. Yeah, no, um, I started uh, a second company, Needle Eye, as a startup. It's a vascular access tool, um, uses a ultrasound probe that is on a stylus that goes into an access needle. Mm -hmm. That way you can see what's right in, um, using M-mode echo, you can see what's right in front of, of the needle uh, as you advance it in. And it's because I've witnessed a number of complications um, in my years of being in the hospital that are avoidable. If you could see what you're pushing the needle into, you know, if you're doing a spinal tap or if you're doing a subclavian stick or something, areas of the body that are very hard to use ultrasound guided. That's one way you can get ultrasound to show you where you want to go. That company uh, is, you know, is, you know, in flux at the moment because um, you know, it's a commodity item and it's uh, in, in the, in the med tech world is really focused on VC and in, in, uh, investment into high margin devices. Mm -hmm. And then in, in November, 2020, you joined Acutus Medical as chief translational translational, excuse me, as chief, chief translational science officer. That's yeah, easier, yeah. easier to say than I just did. Compare what Acutus Medical is doing to what you did with Farapels. Are we in the, uh, is it the same technology? Is it a variation of the technology? Uh, is it sort of a next generation? What, it, how does it stack up? After leaving Farapels, AKA IO approach, um, I had a non-compete. And so I just went to my lab at the university of Iowa and built a series of experiments to better understand how to apply electroporation um, as a ablation technology and as a um, yeah, as as a uh, gene therapy technology or a 
uh, electrochemotherapy technology, you know, and it's um, so I spent a lot of time years with hamster cells and jello um, <laughs> kind of looking at waveforms and, and the major determinants um, knowing that I was going to, um, you know, cause I'd invested so much in being a world expert in electroporation, neuromodulation being my other thing that I, I am deeply involved with. And we could talk about that another time because cardionomics worth talking about, but so uh, I, I get out of my non-compete, which is quite long. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, and so I start talking to a lot of the companies. Um, uh, a lot of the big companies are interested in hiring me as a consultant. And so I, I, I dabble with that for a little while. But um, I started spending more time with Acuitas as a consultant because um, they have really fascinating mapping system. And so... And they were very interested in building a pulse field um, system. And so I decided to go with um, a, um, uh, a company that was at a great stage for a person like me. You mm-hmm. know, the highly organized companies, they're so structured that they really impede their, their ability to, to operate um, in, a, in, in, a, in a very quickly innovative way. Um, big companies are good at acquiring companies. They're good at marketing. They're good at running large clinical trials, you know, uh, distribution, you know, vertical integration. They're not necessarily good at um, championing uh, really radical ideas. Um, and so, uh, whereas Acutus is, you know, <laughs> you see, if you could look behind the screen, they have amazing stuff. And I was really impressed. And they, they were willing to, to, uh, you know, uh, entertain my, my interest in, uh, electroporation in a way that would allow me to do something I think, um, people will be happy with, uh, uh, so a big challenge that we have is, you know, when you have pulse field, if you want to, you know, um, kind of direct the electricity in a way, you know, create a field that, um, you can predict, um, you know, or, you, you know, you can get a focal catheter to work, you know, you have fixed geometry um what waveform works best and you'll you can get a bunch of guys there's probably 20 people that that you can get in a room right now that would you know that could argue for weeks about you know what is the best waveform biphasic monophasic you know you know do you do unipolar do you bipolar do you do this x y and z and so there's so many variables with electroporation that um that you can kind of knobs to turn that it becomes very hard to compare between what everyone is doing in the end there's some very basic things and so i i discuss uh, with uh, acuitous what their their goals were and our goals aligned very well mm-hmm. and uh so really accelerate the project and it has it uh, uh started you know getting ready for human trials and um i'm very happy with the results that we have right now you know it's non-thermal and uh, it seems to be tolerable for patients and very very effective at creating lesions so you were when when the the, the Pulse acquisition by Boston Scientific was announced, uh, and there was a there was a post on LinkedIn, and I think you had made the comment that this was their biggest acquisition since Watchmen. There's a lot of other praise of of the acquisition that it's, it really promises big things are coming. Uh, where is this this field headed? Both with now Boston Scientific putting its full force behind Pulse and your work at Acutus Medical. What does this field look like in uh, in five or ten years? Um, well, I think we're, we're, people use the, the term paradigm shift frequently, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I think this is a great example of when a real paradigm shift is happening. 
there's enough data now to support electroporation as a safer, faster, easy mode to use for certain applications in the heart. And so um, Ferropulse is already in the European market. Everybody else is fast follower. And, um, and, you know, that list is pretty long. If you look at the data being generated from uh, and published in every one of these meetings, I would say a good 10% of the, of the meeting content of HRS <laughs> may have been related to uh, pulse field in some regard. Um, Where's it going is a very good question though, because uh, there are still changes is uh, to deploying the technology. And, um, and I think we will see a convergence of strategy happening over the next two to two to three years. And when I say convergence of strategy, since there are so many knobs you can turn with electroporation, um, yeah, I think you'll start seeing that everyone kind of converges in one direction um, on their single shot devices, what mm-hmm. works the best, what's easy, because you know, it's not necessarily electroporation that makes the workflow for a doctor that, you know, that elegant. I mean, electroporation is great for tissue healing. It's great for speed, ease of use maybe, but that also depends on the shape of the catheter, how easy it is to put up into the body, how big the hole is, you know, um, are there complications that we see from electroporation that we haven't really had to deal with in the past that we have to overcome or mitigate, you know, and there are a lot of unknown questions, but I would just say that convergence is something I would expect to see, you know, and wherever, and because you have a lot of strategies right now, and some of them um, look a lot different than the other, the ferropulse flower versus a, uh, a ring catheter uh, versus a balloon catheter, you know, I think, uh, and, you know, or, or a mesh, um, you'll see that. And then there's the big strategy between a focal catheter and a single shot catheter for PVI. Mm-hmm. I think focal is definitely going to be the preeminent um, um, technology because like a designing a bicycle, you know, EPs have been using a deflectable pointable catheter for a long time, and we can use it to ablate VT, PVCs, AVNRT, flutter, fib, whatever you want to ablate. We can do it with that catheter. We know how to do it. And it's a highly refined technology. And it's really hard to ver- you know, get away from something that really kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it uh, works. It just simply works. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is going to ascend into the preeminent kind of application for pulse field. Whereas, uh, uh, single shots, very, very valuable uh, area because, you know, if you do it right, if you design it so that it empirically has enough overlap and redundancy and can address the, 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 the variation in human anatomy, it's a great tool, very fast, very effective since PVI is currently the cornerstone of AFib ablation for paroxysmal AFib. You know, that is a good strategy. And I think, so those will be the two converging strategies. I think everyone's going to have a focal catheter and everyone is going to have a single shot. And I don't know what the single shot's going to look like. I got my own personal beliefs, <laughs> but uh, I can't share those with you right now. But the, uh, um, but, uh, the uh, I do see, you know, I love, I love what Ferropulse has done. You know, obviously multiplexing is a really important component. Um, uh, but the... Uh, you know, they, uh, uh, but you know, we'll see uh, how many people really false if, uh, follow that lead. And, and final question, as you make this, as, as this makes the procedure safer, I assume the intention and the hope is that it's going to open the opportunity for many more patients to be treated this way. 
Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the, I mean, let's say you believe, you know, epidemiologists, <laughs> you got a, about a 1% incidence and prevalence of AFib in the population. You know, you got 300 million people here and that's going to be, you know, 3 million people per year going to need an ablation, you know, and, you know, so if, if you're going to, and, and then of those people, 20 or 30% need two ablations right now, we don't touch that. You know, we don't even come close um, uh, to doing the, the, that many primary uh, ablations. And, and if you look at Europe and all the other ones, we, we're really under-resourced to be able to address anything outside of paroxysmal mm-hmm. and then the, between the redos and all that stuff. So a technology that hastens the workflow and increases safety um, uh, is absolutely critical to taking care of more patients. What I really like about what's happening right now is, you know, I'm obviously a believer in electroporation uh, in this application. I think it is a, a perfect um, technology, and, and I've, I've been a proponent of it for many years. But uh, the uh, the the cool thing in my mind is that with real pulse field um, ablation, where it's not very thermal, you're not actually cooking too much tissue and you're on the posterior wall, those kind of things. When you're, uh, this increases safety, tissue healing, all this universally for the field of electrophysiology. So treating a fib, regardless of whether, what company you're a supporter of, since every single company is working on this and pouring enormous, and I'm telling you, billions of dollars are being spent on this right now. Mm-hmm. It's shocking. You know, the, uh, I think clinical outcomes are going to improve. And I think that that is an inevitable um, consequence of the willingness of people to kind of reevaluate whether or not RF is the, is really uh, as good as we think it is. And, and, and I think, you know, in five years from now, I'll be very surprised if there are a lot of applica- a lot of procedures done with RF. I think uh, probably the only one I would see sticking around would be something like uh, if somebody wants to, do gangliectomies or if they want to do uh, a um, AVNRT, uh, you know, those types of uh, arrhythmias that that's, that's probably the, the, the last bastion of RF uh, because pulse field uh, can, you know, my experience is we've been able to do pulse field for every other type of, of procedure done by an EP. Fantastic. Well, great story, uh, a great outcome, and uh, I'm grateful that you joined us on the podcast, Steve. Thanks for, hey, thanks for thank being here. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun, Tom. All right, let's roll on to uh, number three. This is another one uh, written by you, Sean. So uh, bring us up to date. ResMed launches next generation uh, positive airway pressure PAP device, the AirSense 11. It's got new features like uh, personal therapy assistant and care check-in, which uh, offer tailored guidance to users and help them ease into therapy uh, and nightly use for treating obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, ResMed obviously is currently kind of in the news for other reasons, because they're the ones that have had to pick up the slack after Phillips have had some, uh, some device recalls in the respiratory and sleep area. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, positive news for ResMed as they continue to make their way in that space. No, they've been uh, really, uh, aggressive in sort of adopting new digital technologies and sort of, uh, patient connectivity tools. So, uh, seems like uh this is uh the latest example of that and they're uh, they're hitting their stride at, at the right time all right danielle we 
got you here because you authored numbers two and one. So let's uh, start with with number two, Danielle. What's the what's the news there? The FDA granted breakthrough device designation for Abiomed's Impella ECP um, expandable percutaneous heart pump. Um, basically, it's it's one of the newest devices out of Abiomed's Impella collection of heart devices and. It's able to fit into a, a smaller vascular areas and is able to provide uh, safer procedures for patients who need hemodynamic support for coronary revascularization. So um, I know the Impella line is making a lot of strides lately because it's the Impella RP right heart pump won pre-market approval in June. So definitely mm-hmm. something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And you wrote that the FDA granted breakthrough device ignition based on a positive clinical data from the company's first 21 Impella ECP patients. So uh, that's uh, that's great that the, the designation comes after uh, such a small sample. Uh, it seems as if the FDA is intent upon getting, uh, getting new technology out to patients. Right. All right. Well, let's roll into number one of this week's New Markers Newsmakers. Yeah. Number one is the FDA approved Abbott's Amplatzer Amulet heart treatment device to treat AFib. And I've, I've recently noticed that AFib treatment devices is kind of spiking. I've seen AFib has crossed, crossed our feeds multiple times a week Mm -hmm. so but the the amulet is a left atrial appendage occluder that treats afib in patients who are at risk of ischemic stroke and uh Mm -hmm. it's just it's a small pouch that's connected to the upper left chamber of the heart well uh well great stuff uh great job with these uh with these articles and with uh bringing folks the news and a mass device before we go danielle uh why don't we uh tell folks what Life sciences pages do you work on in, in addition to uh, Mass Device? Because you, you lead up a few of our other uh, our other sites. I lead medicaltubingandextrusion.com. It's a lot of catheter-based news and tubing news, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then also I, I dabble in medical design and outsourcing. That's where I started here, but I've expanded. Dabbler and MDO. And Sean, remind folks uh, what uh, what pages you work. So uh, I do a lot of drug delivery business news. Uh, that's the one I've been working on mainly, but then Mass Device uh, is what I started with. And then I'll contribute here and there to pretty much everything. But uh, yeah, drug, drug delivery and Mass Device are, are the main two. Excellent. All right. Now we'll continue our conversation uh, about post-field ablation. Next up, I want to bring in Rebecca Seidel. Rebecca Seidel is the president of Cardiac Ablation Solutions and Dr. Robert Cowell. Robert Cowell is the vice president of medical affairs and CMO of Cardiac Rhythm and Heart Failure. They're both at Medtronic. And this is actually an excerpt of our Medtronic Talks podcast that we ran at the end of July. If you'd like to hear the entire interview, you can go to devicetalks.com. You can find it there. Or you can subscribe. You can find the Medtronic Talks podcast. They come out about two or three times a month. You can find it on all major podcast channels, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, just as you can find Device Talks Weekly there. So subscribe to both of these podcasts. But before we begin this uh, very short conversation with Rebecca Seidel and Robert Cowell, I want to bring in our sponsor, Paul Life Sciences. I spoke with Joseph Vickers. Joseph Vickers is the global portfolio leader for medical membranes and media at Paul Life Sciences. And we had a short visit to uh, learn what Paul has been up to. Let's listen. Well, Joseph Vickers, thanks for joining us. Uh, Tell our listeners a bit more about Paul Corp and Paul Life Sciences. 
Yeah, certainly. So Paul's split into into two kind of subsections. We have uh, Paul Industrial uh, and then Paul Life Sciences. So the area I'm in is Paul Life Sciences, which is really a materials technology company at the heart. Um, and then the core technology around that is microporous filtration membranes. Um, we split ourselves into different business units so we can best serve our customers in, in each of those business units. Um, so we have our biotech section, our laboratory section, and then the medical section, which is uh, the part that I'm involved with. And then within that, we have a portfolio of medical membranes. Uh, so these are membranes that we manufacture, uh, design, manufacture, and then offer for sale through our OEM channel. So we're providing the membranes as a component that's then integrated by our customers into you know, primarily their medical devices. All right, we'll hear more from Joe Vickers just after this conversation with Rebecca Seidel and Robert Cowell. And just the final area I'd like to cover is just uh, your work in, in the Pulse field, Pulse Select. Uh, you've got some trials going on there. How important is it, before we get into the details of that technology, to have sort of multiple approaches to treating AFib uh, and to have more, I guess, to have those extra shots on net. Is it, is it necessary to have two or three or four different technologies to, to treat this disease? I think it is. I think that as we, as we look to the future, there will be opportunities for cryo, RF, and pulse field ablation in, in this space. The reason I say that is because there are multiple types of arrhythmias, and mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about atrial fibrillation today, but there are other things like VT, SVT, and we think that there are certainly tools that can treat across that across that spectrum of both disease states and the technologies. And so I think it'll continue to be important for the long haul to have all three. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think the other piece is, as much as we know about doing pulmonary vein isolation, as a, and, and, and again, the reason for treating early is because that's the pulmonary veins are the main sources early. When you get into later phases of AFib, it's less about the pulmonary veins. And we still have a lot to learn about the mechanisms and to be able to bring to bear different types of energy sources, depending on those mechanisms as we learn more, is going to be really critical. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk a bit about, uh, about Pulse Select. Where are you with that, uh, those trials and that technology? So we've, we're very excited about this technology. We've completed the pilot phase. It's a global trial, and we're moving into the pivotal phase at this point. We're about half enrolled in this trial, and we expect to finish um, the enrollment by the end of this calendar year. And so um, it's a paroxysmal and persistent, so a two-arm study, 150 patients in each arm. And uh, like I said, we're, we're getting close to finishing the enrollment. It's a year follow-up, and then we'll have results at that point. Great. And uh, anything to add to that, Rob? I know just, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I was privy to this technology a long time ago, again, before I came to Medtronic and share the same kind of excitement from when what I described when we first started using the cry balloon. I, I think this is one of those things that can, you know, redefine how you go about ablation, not only from kind of the ease and effectiveness, but, but again, the safety factor, you know, you you, if you continue to make incremental um, improvements in safety, it just opens the door to how you can treat people. All right, it's great to have Medtronic's point of view. And once again, you can get the entire 
conversation. It's about uh, Medtronic's approach to atrial, atrial fibrillation, including uh, its uh, work on uh, making Arctic Front a first-line treatment for atrial fibrillation. And now we're going to get back into our conversation with Joe Vickers from Paul Life Sciences. Joe, I'd like to learn a little more about medical membranes. How are they used in medical devices? Yeah, no problem. So we we split our offerings by different application. Um, so we have three sections. Uh, we have our diagnostic membranes, which are used in, in various different ways for point of care diagnostic devices. Um, so I guess the most, the one that's closest to people's uh, thoughts at the moment is the rapid COVID test. There's, there's membranes in there which are doing the allowing that diagnostic to happen. Um, then we also have our liquid filtration membranes. So these are primarily used in drug delivery filtration. So if you have a, an intravenous drip, then there should be a, a filter on there to protect the, the patient from any air or uh, particulate. And that's a, a hydrophilic filter membrane. So it lets the liquid pass through and, and retains any contaminants. And then the other section is our gas and vent membranes. So these are either for venting or for gas flow filtration. And they're hydrophobic or, or oleophobic membranes, uh, most commonly used, again, in medical devices as the, the vent filter. So if the liquid stream is, is the drug that's going into the patient, the vent is there to make sure that the, the device can breathe, if you like, um, but it still maintains the... Uh, the sterility and, and make sure none of the none of the drug is is escaping through that section. And finally, Joe, I understand that Paul is coming out with a new product. Please, please share some more details. Yes, yeah, so we have a new new product launch. Um, it's called our Versaport RC, uh, and this fits in that gas and vent uh, application that we just discussed. Uh, so this is a oleophobic filter membrane. Um, for use in as, as venting in, in those medical devices, um, and there's really kind of three uh, three points around this membrane why it's why it's a great membrane. Um, the first one is the filtration performance, so I guess the most important. Uh, so it, it performs really well at making sure it, it has the high retention ratings to uh, stop any contaminants getting into the stream. But then the other one, which is you know really really important is it's a very robust membrane. So like I said earlier, we, we supply these membranes as a component for customers to integrate into their devices. Um, so this is really easy to handle. It's very easy for them to use in manufacturing. It seals very well into their devices. It's not particularly staticky. So you don't end up with the, uh, you know, reels of, of membrane floating all around the room. Um, and also, it's not sided, so you know, whichever way you want to put it into the device, uh, it, it's going to work equally well in, in both directions. Um, and then the final point, which is there's the PFOA regulations, which have come into place recently uh, in Europe particularly, but we'll see those probably expand around the rest of the world. Um, and this membrane has been developed to make sure that it's, it's fully compliant in terms of the levels of uh, PFOA and, and PFOA-related components that are in, involved in its manufacture. All right, it's great to have Joe Vickers on the podcast. Once again, he's a global portfolio leader for medical membranes and media at Paul Life Sciences. If you want to find out more information about Paul Life Sciences and Paul Corp, 
Go to paul.com. That's P-A-L-L.com. I enjoyed this upcoming conversation very much. I had a chance to speak with Ken Stein. Ken is the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at the CRM Business in Boston Scientific. He, uh, he really shares uh, some great insights on, on why he became a CMO, what it means to him, uh, what advice he gives to others who are considering a move from clinical to a corporation. And then, of course, we get into uh, talking about Farapulse and uh, Boston Scientific's other work in the areas. So let's begin this great conversation with Ken Stein of Boston Scientific. Ken Stein, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Tom. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's going to be great to f- to follow up and learn more about the, the Farapulse acquisition and talk more, more broadly about uh, atrial fibrillation and where Boston Scientific is headed. And, and, uh, and I do want to hit upon the uh, the Preventus acquisition as well. Lots, lots to talk about. But uh, as we always do, I, I'm, I'd like to find out a little bit more about uh, our guests and allow our, re- our listeners to, to hear more as well. Uh, how did you come to, to join Boston Scientific in, in 2009? You were practicing at the time, correct? Take us back, to, uh, gosh, 13 years now, <laughs> and, uh, and talk about, about that career change. I'm always fascinated by these, these points in time. Sure, Th- 13 years and, and one pandemic ago. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a cardiologist, cardiac electrophysiologist, and uh, I was on uh, faculty uh, in New York City at uh, Cornell, uh, where I was the associate director of the EP lab. Uh, and uh, I had a lot of interactions with industry, uh, was running a major trial for Boston Scientific at the time, a trial called Smart AV. Uh, you know, but uh, uh, honestly, was, was, was very happy where I was at Cornell, but uh, Boston was looking for a chief medical officer for rhythm management. And, you know, when, when the opportunity arose, sort of had a, had a way off. I mean, I love taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue though, you know, when you're, when you're practicing medicine is you help patients serially one at a time. Right. And you can make a huge impact in, in people's lives, but you're limited to the people who you're taking care of at the moment. Whereas, you know, in a position like this, the breadth of your impact is, is much larger. Now, you don't necessarily see the people that you're helping. So you, you lose the immediacy, uh, but the decisions you make, uh, and I always say for better or for worse, uh, <laughs> affect you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of people. And, and so for me, you know, I had achieved what I wanted in my career academically. I had no aspiration to become a chief of cardiology at any, uh, at any medical center. And so for me, it was the opportunity to have the kind of breadth of impact I think I have had through my career here is really what, what attracted me to, to make the change. Are you practicing at all still? I know some some folks like to practice one or two times a month. No, you know, th- this A, this is really a 24-7 job <laughs> in and of itself. And, and B, at least for the kind of you know medicine that, that I practiced, uh, the conflicts of interest really just, sure. just become too daunting too quickly. So I, I hadn't done any patient care, although uh, during for a while during the pandemic, I was actually volunteering at a vaccine site. So, oh, really? Uh, and and that was that, again. That that, that 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 was nice to just again be able to feel that you get back. And people were obviously always very happy when they were able to get the vaccine, particularly early on. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, so I felt, uh, you know, a, a little bit of that immediate patient impact. Oh, uh, but cool. other than that, no, I haven't have not been able to, uh, to to keep on taking care of patients. I'm guessing that you, uh, from time to time, are asked uh, advice from folks who are thinking about that switch, uh, physicians who maybe want to move into industry for whatever reason. And I'm hoping you're not getting a lot more of those after the after the pandemic. But what sort of uh, advice do you give to folks who are thinking about shifting to industry? And and maybe what what surprised you the most? What 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 did you learn from that from that transition? Yeah, you know, it's a question I get get asked a lot. Sure. What what did you find? Uh, and, and I think, uh, and uh, I'm try to say this as, as nicely as possible, is, you know, that on the one hand, uh, physicians are, are way too cynical about the motivations of folks in industry. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- pe- people are in industry, are, are in industry for the same reason that folks are in medicine. It's, it's, it's to help people. And, you know, you wake up every morning and you, you know that your goal that day is to do something that's going to extend or improve the lives of, of patients. Uh, you know, the, on the other hand, is also found that industry is way too cynical about the motivation of physicians. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, we uh, one of the early things when I got to Boston Scientific was the development of an extended longevity battery technology that you know, basically doubled the longevity of our devices versus anything else that was out there on the market. And, and, you know, there were folks internally who, who were very worried, well, you know, in a fee-for-service environment, are physicians actually going to be willing to adopt this technology because it's going to reduce the number of, of pulse generator changes that they're going to do? And, and the answer is, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that became a very important differentiating feature for us. And, and so I, I think there, there's, there's, there were bad actors on both sides, but on the whole, you know, folks on, on both sides want to do the right thing for patients. And, and that gets to, you know, sort of the advice that I give to people, which honestly was, was the advice that I got when I took this job. Uh, uh, I was interviewing and met at the time with uh, uh, Dr. Don Bain, who was the global chief medical officer for Boston Scientific. And when he, uh, when he interviewed me for the role, uh, the first thing he asked me, I, I hadn't even sat down. I was on my way into his office with one hand on the, on the doorknob. And he said to me, he said, Stein, you have no idea what a chief medical officer does, do you? <laughs> and and if that's where you kind of think, am I, am I going to try to BS my way through this or not? And I said, I said no, 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 Dr. Bain, you're right, I don't. But what he said, and, and it, it is critically important to my decision to take the role, and critically important to how I see myself in the role, and, and, and how I want other MDs who we hire to see themselves. And, and what he said is, your role is to be the voice of the patient mm-hmm. within Boston Scientific. And he, he went on, he said, you, you don't know anything about business. We know you don't know anything about business. We got a lot of MBAs here, and, and hopefully they do know something about business. <laughs> but, but, but your role is to make sure that everything we do is, is directed at real needs for patients. That's uh, that's excellent. And that's, a, I'm sure, a great selling point for a physician to know that they're going to be able to advocate for the patients. Um, it's, it sounds like a big, it is a big responsibility. I mean, what is that? What is that? How do you sort of keep that perspective as part of you and as part of your overall mission when you've sort of removed yourself from, from the healthcare process? Like, how do you keep that in front of mind that you're always there for the patient? 
Well, I, I think the key is that I don't see myself as removed from the healthcare process. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the patients who get our devices are my patients. Uh, in, in, in the same way, you know, when I, when, when I put in a Boston Scientific pacemaker in a patient, that was my patient. When I'm making the pacemaker that's going to that patient, they're, they're still my patient. That's a great point. And so we, we, we all do, you know, we, we, we look at these folks as, you know, we're, we're privileged to be able to be part of their care. We have responsibility to make sure they get the best possible outcomes. And they are our patients for life. That's great. That's a great, great, great point of view. So let's talk a bit about what you oversee at Boston Scientific. You're senior vice president there. You're chief medical officer for rhythm management. Uh, what what technologies, what, what, what therapeutic areas fall under your uh, responsibility? Yeah, so by and large, uh, you know, we uh, structure things on a franchise basis. And so within rhythm management, uh, we have an electrophysiology franchise, which is our technologies for mapping ablation of cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, we have what we call our, our core cardiac rhythm management franchise, uh, pacemakers, ICDs, uh, and uh, resynchronization therapy devices. Uh, and then we have a diagnostics and services franchise, uh, which includes uh, our uh, Preventus acquisitions company acquired a few months ago, uh, which does ambulatory ECG monitoring. Uh, and then our Lux DX implantable cardiac monitor, which was approved last year. Uh, and then beyond that, I also still do have a role. Uh, we uh, took uh, Watchman, which was the, mm-hmm. the, the first uh, approved left atrial appendage closure device uh, through acquisition integration with Boston and then through the regulatory approval process. That now sits in another division within Boston Scientific, but I, I still do have a role in providing medical guidance for Watchman. Wow, that's that is a lot. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what what brought us together: uh, atrial fibrillation and, and Farapulse. Uh, first, give me a sort of a, if you would, a state of atrial fibrillation treatment as to what are the technologies available. Uh, you know, if you want to focus only on Boston Scientific, that's understandable. But where where are we with with atrial fibrillation? Because Farapulse feels like to me it's a uh, is uh, the where we're going to be part of the question, which we'll, which I'll ask next. Yeah, we, we are very excited about the Farapulse acquisition. I'll talk a little bit. And again, the, the, the other disclosure that I need to make here, you know, beyond having treated with patients atrial fibrillation and now working for a company that makes devices to treat AFib, I, I have AFib myself oh. uh, and so have a very personal stake. In, in, and it really, uh, it's it's interesting how, how having it, yourself, you know, gives you a much better understanding of uh, the emotional impact of the disease on top of just sort of the, the, uh, the intellectual facts that you know about it, having, having studied it or having cared for patients. You know, AFib, first of all, right, it, it is an extraordinarily common arrhythmia. It's the most common sustained arrhythmia in, in adults uh, in the developed world. Uh, it is one of the largest markets in medical technology today and one of the fastest growing markets in medical technology today. Uh, you know, what is clear today is that if you want to try to restore people to normal sinus rhythm, the best approach uh, is to do a procedure called ablation, where you, you know, basically just destroy the abnormal tissue that's giving rise to the atrial fibrillation. Uh, clear data that for patients with what's called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, where atrial fibrillation starts and stops on its own, that, that this is far more effective than, than drug therapy. And accumulating data that, that 
although the success rates aren't as great, still can be highly successful, even in patients who've progressed to what's called persistent atrial fibrillation, mm-hmm. where, where they go in it all the time. And the cornerstone of atrial fibrillation ablation is to ablate, you know, basically destroy the tissue that's around where the four veins from the lungs, what are called the pulmonary veins, empty blood from the lungs into the upper left chamber of the heart. It's called the left atrium. Uh, and, and just by doing that, there are success rates that are probably in the range of 70 to 80% uh, in terms of preventing recurrences of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Uh, now, you know, up until now, mm-hmm. the, the two technologies that have been used to do that kind of ablation have been either radiofrequency uh, ablation, which uh, actually uh, causes, uh, uses heat to cauterize tissue around the veins, or cryoablation, where you use cold energy you know, to freeze the tissue and, and, and damage the tissue around the veins. And you know, within Boston Scientific, we have a very extensive portfolio of radiofrequency ablation catheters, uh, including uh, a, a recent approval, a very novel catheter called StablePoint in Europe, which has both force sensing in the tip. So you can tell you know, exactly how well opposed the catheter tip is to the tissue you're trying to ablate as well as something called direct sense, where you actually can measure the electrical coupling that you have to the tissue. Uh, And then we also have a cryoablation catheter called Polar X, which is approved in Europe and which is undergoing its IDE clinical trial in the United States. Uh, But the thing that we're most excited about, uh, and I always worry when I say that, it's like asking which of your children is your favorite. (laughs) I, I love all my children. Equally, but, but the I, products I don't listen excited. to the podcast, so don't worry, yeah, it won't hurt right. anyone's feelings. So. <laughs> uh, but the most exciting is, is Farapulse, which is a completely novel energy source. It's a non thermal way of ablating the, the cardiac tissue. And they, they do something called pulse field ablation. Hmm. It's sometimes also called irreversible electroporation. Uh, and, and it's an electrical waveform that is very selective for only damaging heart tissue. Uh, and, and so the promise of it is that it really reduces the risk of a lot of the non-cardiac complications that you can get with the other energy sources. And, and because it's safer, we also expect that the large-scale clinical trials will prove it out to be at least as effective and, and, and quite probably more effective than the energy sources. Uh, and then also it, it is very quick procedure to do. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's very efficient for, for physicians and, and anytime you get in and out of a procedure faster, that's, that's better for patients as well. Uh, and so Farapulse uh, has been at this, you know, for quite some time, Be- began as a company called Iowa Approach. Uh, we were very early investors in Iowa Approach and we, we've, we've been investors in Farapulse from the get-go, uh, and then uh, just uh, actually a few weeks ago, closed the deal mm-hmm. uh, to acquire and are in the, in the process of, of integrating Farapulse. Uh, they are approved under CE Mark in Europe already and are well underway in their U.S. pivotal trial. Were you involved with the, or were you part of the due diligence when those early investments were made? How long have you been following yeah. the story? 
Yeah, no, from uh, uh, from day one, uh, there there was a, a electrophysiologist in, in Iowa, uh, Steve Michelson, who had this sort of crazy idea that you could harness this energy source uh, as, as a means of you know, selectively ablating cardiac tissue. Uh, and we saw the promise from day one and have been investors in it from day one. I love those ideas that sort of come out of, out of I don't want to say left field, but they, they hadn't been thought of by others before. But once everyone sort of sees the concept, they, they, they see the promise. Uh, what was it about uh, Steve and, and, and Iowa's approach that, that really sort of, in, what was the first thing that excited you about? Was it, did you immediately see the promise? Did it some, was it something that you needed to be sold on? What was your sort of first impression? Well, I, I, I'm going to say yes, immediately saw the promise, but also did need to be sold on it, right? <laughs> because, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of things that are promising that, 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 that don't all pan out. Sure. Uh, but I mean, the clear promise here was safety, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, if, if you have an energy source that, that is myocardial selective, uh, that is a game changer. Uh, you know, there, there are complications with other ablation energies for atrial fibrillation are rare, but are potentially very serious. Uh, and you know anything that you can do to improve safety is going to be a winner. You know as 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 long as you're at least as effective, as long as you're at least as efficient. And and here with the promise of not just better safety, but better efficacy and more efficiency. You know that that again, you really didn't need to be a genius to to, to see that if you could deliver on all that, you're you're going to have something that'd be. That, that would be game changer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, there is obviously the, the, all the due diligence that, that you need to do. And it, it is a long path, sure, right, from concept to then actually translating that concept into something that, you know, will be safe, that will be effective, you know, that, that, that will be efficient and that can be applied to humans. Are you able to speak to what, why the acquisition w- was made now? Did something occur? Was it the CE mark? Was it the enrolling patients? Was there a milestone that was met? Uh, or was it just a decision, sort of the consensus that now's the time that we that we bring this in-house? Yeah, I think what I can say is, you know, un- under the deal that we had with them, you mm-hmm. know, there were a set of milestones that would trigger the option to acquire and, you know, looking at where they were progressing with those milestones, now was the time where it made sense to, to, to make the acquisition. Uh, there are always things that startup companies can do more nimbly and, and more quick than a large multinational like Boston Scientific. You know, on the other hand, you know, you get to a certain point and there are things that you can do much more effectively as right. a large multinational in terms of scaling up manufacturing, meeting commercial demand in Europe, in terms of scaling up clinical trial activities and getting to the end of the, the, the various pivotal clinical trials that are ongoing. So what the, you have the CE mark, you're, you're moving, hopefully you're, you're moving to try to secure FDA approval, you've got the clinical trials underway. How does this change the game in terms of how these patients are, are treated? If it's safer and it's as effective or more effective, I imagine then this means more patients who perhaps would have opted for pharmaceuticals will now have this as an option if the safety is increased. What? How does this change the the, the, the treatment paradigm for these patients? Well, I think it's exactly what you said. I, I think I think it, it's you know being able to pull patients you know who might not otherwise have been offered this as a treatment uh, in earlier, uh, improving the throughput, you know, reduces just waiting list times. 
uh, and you, you know we're we're used to talking about waiting lists in in some countries other than the United States, but even the United States now, because just the limited number of, of labs that are you know, doing these kinds of sophisticated ablations, there can be long waits before you can get scheduled for your procedure. Uh, so increased throughput, uh, and then you know I think I. I touched on it very briefly earlier, uh, if we can bring the same kind of success rates to the treatment of persistent atrial fibrillation as we can, as we have now for the treatment of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, that also opens up a, a huge new referral pool of patients. And then the last thing I'd say is uh, also bringing this type of technology, you know, not just into the United States, not just into Western Europe, but enabling ablation procedures to be performed safely, quickly, effectively on a global basis. And when you have the approval in the U.S., uh, is this something that just fits neatly in the quote-unquote bag of, of your current sales force and you're selling to the, the same physicians, or is there, is there a different uh, customer that you'll be targeting with this? You know, this, this fits perfectly into yeah. the bag of, of, of what we already offer. And, and as a platform, fits well in with with our other platforms, our complex mapping and navigation with Rhythmia and our, our overall catheter portfolio. And how I just want to explore again the the the, the drug versus device sort of question. How how do current technologies that you're offering compare to pharmaceutical treatment in that are they a second or third option? Are they offered first option currently? Where 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 is and you might have explained this further. Maybe I'm just asking you to expand on where does your where does Boston Scientific's treatments for atrial fibrillation come into play? When are they offered to to patients? Yeah, I mean, as of now, the, the uh, ablation solutions. If you, if you look, for instance, at uh, the, the guideline recommendations, typically are for people who who failed uh, some kind of a challenge with an antiarrhythmic drug. There's accumulating clinical evidence that suggests that even as, as first-line therapy, uh, ablation is better than, than undergoing a drug trial. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, at some point, you know, the uh, indications, the guidelines, the regulation is going to have to catch up to that. Outside of the U.S., still today, ablation is typically only offered as a second line, someone who's, who's already failed the drug. Uh, but, you know, frankly, the, the drugs for rhythm control and atrial fibrillation are just so uniformly ineffective and, and, and have such a high risk of side effects that as we look towards the future, I, I think the future is one where, where ablation really becomes first-line therapy. Uh, it is exciting. Excellent. And, and last area I wanted to talk about was, and you hit upon it earlier, uh, Prevenus. You folks acquired Prevenus earlier this year. Tell us a bit about the acquisition and about the technology you, you brought in. Yeah, let me do that. And, and it's, it actually is in some ways, very much part of our atrial fibrillation okay. uh, a category leadership strategy in, in that, you know, where we are now with Preventus is really the only company that can offer every technology physicians would need from diagnosing atrial fibrillation all the way through to, to, to treating atrial fibrillation. And so, you know, starting with Preventus, which offers ambulatory EKG monitoring, so Holter monitoring, short-term Holter, long-term like 14-day holder monitoring, and event monitors or mobile cardiac telemetry, through to our LuxDX implantable cardiac monitor, which can you know, provide 
you know, multiple years of EKG recording when implanted under the skin. Again, to our ablation portfolio, we were the only company to be able to offer all three modalities for ablation, uh, radiofrequency, cryoablation, and pulse field ablation now with Ferropulse. And then through to Watchman with left atrial appendage closure for stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation. Uh, and, and what Preventus, again, added to our armamentarium was, was that early diagnostic capability. Uh, that is great for us for a number of reasons. You know, first, they're just the clear commercial synergies uh, in having you know, a sales force that's going out and now representing ambulatory EKG recording, uh, as well as a sales force doing the implantable cardiac monitor or our, our typical CRM products. Uh, there are clear commercial synergies there. Uh, these types of studies are often the first entry point into either a device implant or an ablation. Uh, there are also R&D synergies. Uh, one of the things that was really attractive about Preventus is they have a very sophisticated AI, artificial intelligence capability. It's part of the secret sauce behind you know, why they've been growing so quickly as an ambulatory ECG company. Uh, and, and that same kind of AI capability we think can be leveraged elsewhere within, with, 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 within our portfolio. That's that is great, great synergy, and you're right. It is it, it complements your other technologies very well. How does it fit to to? It's an area that has hit upon some snags with reimbursement. Uh, reimbursement has been cut for some of these tests, and I know it's impacting some companies that don't have as wide an offering as as you do. We've talked with iRhythm on the podcast earlier. How is Boston Scientific sort of approaching uh, the, the the challenge to? Reimbursement is this? Is this just a technology that the reimbursement? Obviously, reimbursement is always important. But if you offer all the solutions to the problems that are identified, maybe you can. You certainly can weather it more better than someone who's just offering the diagnostic. Uh, but how do you see CMS's view of of these tests? Uh, and is this something that Boston Scientific is going to be challenging as other companies are doing? Yeah, I, I think you know, as you said, this is one area where breadth of portfolio is, is very helpful, and at least being able to weather some of the storm. Uh, you know, having said that, you know, we think it's pretty clear that uh, the uh, reimbursement for reimbursement cut for long-term Holter undervalues that technology. Uh, there's a wealth of clinical trial data that that gets to just you know, how much more valuable, how much more information you get from a long-term Holter recording as opposed to standard, you know, 24 to 48 hour Holter monitor, uh, you know, and clearly there's a lot more cost involved in both the technology designed to do those recordings and just being able to read those recordings uh, and deal with that wealth of data effectively. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're confident that uh, there's going to be some uh, rectification of that decision uh, but again, one of the one of the advantages of Preventus approach, at least, is you know they're not just a long-term alter company, and they, mm-hmm. they do also bring the event monitor recording capability, the mobile cardiac telemetry uh, capability, and the short-term alter capability. Excellent. Well, great clarity on that. Well, great conversation, Ken. Uh, I'm really excited myself, and I can say it clearly that uh, about the Farapulse acquisition, it's great. It's just great to see the the ecosystem work. We have a smaller company developing an exciting technology, and a larger company ready to to, to 
carry it through. And uh, I appreciate your uh, joining us on the podcast and, uh, and sharing your thoughts. Well, thanks. Thank you for having me on. All right. Well, now is the time we tell folks how to reach us on social media. Danielle Kirsch, uh, how can folks find you if they need a Barry the Groundhog update? <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Same name, Danielle Kirsch. <laughs> it's convenient using your same name and, and all your social media accounts. And Sean Hooley, where can folks find you? Similarly, same name on both accounts. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, it's Sean, S-E-A-N, Hooley, W-H-O-O-L-E-Y, W-T-W-H. That's my handle, Sean Hooley, W-T-W-H, and then Sean Hooley on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. I'm on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. So once again, please uh, reach out to us. We'd love to be connected with you on those social media channels so you can get our latest news. We post uh, our news up there as, as we can. And uh, please do share this podcast. And when you do that, tag the three of us so we can uh, follow your conversations. You can also, of course, reach out to uh, Chris Newmarker, who will be back next week. Chris is on Twitter at Newmarker, as in a Newmarker. And he's also on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker. New marker. So uh, yes, please do share this. Please do subscribe. Please do leave a review. I don't usually ask people to do that, to leave a ranking or, or a review, but uh, it is helpful. I don't usually ask it because people don't always do it, but uh, what the heck? I can uh, I can just ask and then you folks can decide what you're going to do. But uh, it does help other folks find the podcast. We're always interested in growing this audience. So uh, share, subscribe, give us a ranking and do what you can. It's time for everyone to, to pitch in and help us out. But uh, all right. Well, that is a wrap. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Woo.